Today's episode is brought to you by BlockFills, powering digital trading. The Federal Reserve just uh, raised interest rates for what could be the last time. Maybe not. Who knows? And I'm here with Julian Brigden of MI2 Partners. Julian, you recently wrote in a, in a note for, for MI2 that markets were on kind of a knife's edge. And I know you've got a lot of thoughts about how you know, markets are kind of on a precipice right now. So what did you mean? In what way are they on the knife's edge? So I, mean, I think the, the big issue that I've got with Jack is there's an inconsistency between what equities are pricing and what the bond market is pricing. And the only way that that is something has to crack. So essentially, either the bond market has to be proved wrong, and we're not going to get hundreds of basis points with the rate hikes, you know, so we do the, you know, we have a nursery rhyme in the UK, the grand old Duke of York, he kind of marched his men up to the top of the hill, and he marched them straight back down again. So we don't get that. Um, And in which case, bonds are mispriced, so yields are going higher. Or alternatively, uh, and maybe we're seeing nascent signs of that, uh, the equity market is wrong. Uh, the equity market is going to come materially lower, and that's going to help tighten financial conditions. And we're going to see a uh, a correction in stocks. And in which case, fine, you can get rate cuts in that environment. But there's just a total inconsistency between these two markets. It is not possible for you to have resilient rising equities and rate cuts. I just, I just do not believe because of the way that this economy is structured these days. We've talked about this, you and I, before about hyper-financialization, this feedback between equities and the real economy. Um, I just don't believe that this is a consistent outcome. Something has to crack. And I don't think either of those outcomes are great. So there has to be a somewhat nasty surprise in either bonds or stocks. I think so, Jack. And, the, and the, pro- the problem that I see is, and a lot of people don't understand this, right? So in, an infl- in a non-inflationary environment, which we've had for you know the last sort of 30 years where inflation is consistently forward, never really had to think about inflation. You always have to think about just growth. And, and in that context, you really think about real growth. So growth after inflation, okay? But in an inflationary environment, you have to think about real growth plus inflation. And that's referred to as nominal GDP. And nominal GDP is still growing at around 6.75% year over year. Now, the problem with that is, is that is way higher than anything that we've seen for the last decade. It's certainly way higher than a sort of the level that you'd expect to see in a soft, even a soft landing. I mean, the post- um, dot-com bubble, believe it or not, economically was a very soft landing. But that saw nominal GDP at 1%, Jack, right? So 575 basis points lower than here, 5.75% lower than here. So the problem is, is when growth is this high, nominal GDP is growth is this high, you can have, you have to kind of figure out where the mix is going to go. Is real growth going to be higher? You know, inflation comes down, and that's what all the bulls want. They're like, well, this is great. You know, inflation's dropping. Real growth can accelerate because the Fed can be done. Okay, we'll put that on one side and look at that equation in a second. Or alternatively, real growth can remain very weak, and inflation can remain 
pi. Now, we know that's not a good equation, right? Because the Fed won't like that high inflation metric. But let's go back to the first bit. Very low inflation, high real growth to just offset, you know, to fill that gap to nominal GDP. So let's take the most extreme example, Jack. Let's say nominal GDP stays at 6.75%. And tomorrow morning, we wake up and CPI is zero. Okay. Jay Powell's dream. Yes, exactly. Well, I, th- I think, you know, every equity bull's dream. Um, here's the problem. Definitionally, if nominal GDP is 6.75 and inflation is zero, your real growth has to be 675 basis points, right? 6.75%. The problem is we have 3.6% unemployment. So if you go back and look at other soft landings, so for example, the early 90s or post the dot-com bubble, as we just discussed, at that point, unemployment was significantly higher. Uh, I think in the early 90s, it was like almost 6.5%. At this point in the cycle, in the early uh, post the dot-com bubble, it was 6. So we had plenty of room to kind of run the economy hot, right? Run that real growth hot. We don't. We have 3.6% unemployment, which is almost a sort of 50, 60 year low. And so if we try and grow real growth at anywhere close to those numbers, right? Remembering that Jay Powell told us a year or so ago that trend growth was 1.75, trying to grow at three to four times that is just simply going to place too much stress on the labor market. A labor market, he said, he wants to see soften, mm-hmm. right, where we rebalance demand and supply. And if you're trying to go at three to four times trend growth, there's no way you're going to be rebalancing that equation. You're just going to be trying to demand, 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 demand. And that's simply going to feed through into wages and core inflationary pressures. And so what you're going to find is, sure, you can have headline inflation drop because we're seeing a big impact of base effects from energy and commodities. By the way, that's all going to start dropping out in the next couple of months and reversing, I think. But this thing could come back, uh, you know, very hard and bite us uh, in core inflation. So essentially what it will tell you is that the Fed isn't done. They're just not done, Jack. The Fed isn't done. The economy is running too hot, so the Federal Reserve has to raise interest rates more to slow the economy down, to slow inflation down. The disinflation we've had so far is because the price of oil was at $120 a year ago. Now it's not. And and that can only go so far. Yes. And so look, at a bare minimum, they can't cut in this environment, right? In a bare minimum, they just simply can't cut. And if things do not slow and they remain at 6.75 nominal GDP, irrespective of said whether the it's all growth and no inflation or all inflation and no growth, they they may have to hike, right? I mean, this, this is the point. They would like, I think, to slowly grind it out. I think on our last call, we we talked about, or certainly on your, on your podcast, we talked about uh, this opportunistic policy framework where they hold rates higher for longer, right? Uh, they may not push them as high as you might have seen in other tightening cycles. So they don't really definitively kill the economy, but they have to force the economy into a period of uncomfortably lower 
growth, right, and potentially higher unemployment. And we don't have those metrics. And in fact, in recent months, the risk is, is once again, because we've got this resilience in the equity market, we're actually seeing some, what we were seeing, nascent signs of weakness, for example, in claims, actually could be starting to reverse. So this economy could be starting to re-accelerate again. And that's just not allowed, Jack. Why does the stock market have to not uh, not perform well? Because interest rates have been rising you know, for over a year, but since October, they've continued to rise. The pace of hikes has slowed down, but the interest rates have continued to go up. And the stock market has been in you know what's now being called a new bull market. And I want to know if you think it's a new bull market or if that's just a term. You know, we've written for a number of years that unfortunately, uh, stocks no longer have any sensitivity to interest rates. In fact, the correlation has become negative. And it started to go negative early uh, post the global financial crisis where we introduced QE. So essentially, stocks don't care about rates anymore. Right, Sectors within the stock market care on a relative basis, Jack. But the broad market, the level of the broad market is simply set by liquidity. And you know, we saw the Fed start to do QT in uh, at the start of 2022, and we saw stocks fall. But as we moved into 2023, we know things got a tad more complicated. Yes. Firstly, Treasury decided to run down their checking account. And now, somewhat suspiciously, they've decided to refill the whole thing from the bill market, which doesn't really affect broad liquidity. I'm not going to go into the mechanics, but you're, you know, people need to know, know that. Um, yeah, it's like if, if uh, you know, the government is a parent and the private sector is a child, if the parent is spending a lot of money running down its bank account, the child's going to get a lot of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then the parent is funding itself now with very short-term obligations. So it's borrowing on like credit cards rather than, you know, long-term loans. Yes. So, so the, so we've so that's sort of dead in that bit, but we also know that we had to bail out the you know the banks SVB, and that led to a short term bump in the Fed's balance sheet. So the net effect is that really for the last eighteen months, the net liquidity in the economy has gone nowhere, and that's why while the equity market is off its height in broad terms, right market cap, not individual sectors. Is 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 off its highs. It really hasn't cratered. You know, it's still relatively strong. And now we've got you know the AI for your you know frenzy, which is taking money. You know, robbing Peter a little bit to pay Paul. So we're taking it from some sectors and putting it to others. But the broad market is still staying quite elevated, Jack, and it is staying elevated at a level which would suggest a slowdown. Right, some sort of some sort of softening, but not real weakness, and arguably not enough. And I think what we're seeing now in the real economy, and this goes back to this issue of hyperfinancialization, and maybe I should clarify what I mean by that. Hyperfinancialization, we use the term to explain the feedback between equities in particular and the real economy. So Logic would dictate that in if you think about the the relationship between the two, it's probably you should say, well, the real economy should lead what happens in 
asset market and, and the equity market. It should be, you know, the level of profit is a function of how many people have got jobs, pricing power, et cetera, et cetera, right? That should dictate revenues in the equity market. The level of inflation should take bond yields, et cetera, et cetera. But in the US, unfortunately, that isn't the case. In the US, actually, it is the level of the equity market that feeds back into the real economy via the behavior of CEOs and, and company executives. So the minute they see their stock prices under pressure, they start to fire people, they start to late cut down capex and spending and so on and so forth. And that obviously was the case last year, right? And that's why we started to see all those headlines about <gasps> layoffs in Silicon Valley, right? Well, because tech stocks got crushed. But what happened in December? Tech stocks and broad equities bounced. And what have we subsequently seen since then? Well, all those layoff announcements have disappeared. No one's yeah, really yeah. laying anyone off anymore. The demand um, to hire AI consultants is very high right now. I bet. Yes. <laughs> and now, ult ultimately, five years from now, maybe AI will have replaced all of us, Jack. But right here, right now, that nascent weakness that the Fed wanted to see has stopped accelerating. And actually, I do fear, could be about to shift the other way round. And that reflects, you know, nominal GDP staying high, inflation coming down a little bit, but real growth re-accelerating. Right. So the economy is too hot, even though uh, re real real growth, uh, inflation has come down. It's all because uh, you know nominal GDP is, st is still high. Yeah. So there has to be a tightening either in the bond market or in the equity market. Bond market, you know, we've heard this argument a lot. When interest rates are higher, it costs more to borrow. Yep. You, it's interesting. You said that the stock market is not that sensitive to uh, interest rate hikes. What I'm, you know, curious about the economy is is does it do interest rate hikes slow down the economy? How much well, they should of, do? They should. Yeah, how, how much of those hikes have we seen in uh, the effect of the economy on the stock market? You're saying that stocks have to go down because they tighten the economy too. Because right. when CEOs who are you know largely paid in stock, their stock falls they cut costs and then they let people go and that slows right. down the economy. Okay, so just returning to that uh, interest rate hikes, how much have they slowed down the economy? If 100% of the tightening effect has already been felt, then interest rates have to go a lot higher. But if the lag effect is very, very big, then you know we're going to feel that in November. Right, so Jay Powell today seems to suggest that financial conditions, as they will refer to, tighten quicker these days because we're all very sophisticated. So we anticipate what the Fed is is going to do so and i i tend to agree with him i think that that that's kind of fair um so to your point maybe we've seen quite a lot of the tightening or more of the tightening than we historically would have seen by this point right so we're slightly ahead the the problem i think comes a little bit and this is also a, a, an element within the economy of we have very much a sort of haves and haves not economy in terms of the impact of interest rates and also uh, within the business space, so if you if you think about it, you know, within the in the real economy on the consumer side, you know, if you're a, a a wealthy boomer who has a house that you locked into your mortgage at under three percent, and you've got some stocks, what's the Fed done to me? Nothing. If you're a, a millennial who's you know, struggling with trying to make a car payment, you're just about to get your student loans, have to start repaying. Uh, you're trying to save money desperately to put 
down on the house and every time you do it, the affordability gets worse and worse and worse, then the Fed's done quite a lot of damage. If you look at the real economy and you look at the corporate side of the, of the real economy, likewise, if you're a Fortune 500 company, in particular, um, one of the very big Fortune 500 companies, you're cash rich, right? So 5% yield, cheers. Thanks very much, right? I'm actually making more money. Now, there's a lot of the vast majority of the S&P 500 isn't cash rich, but they they saw this coming, so they turned out their debt. So they're kind of okay for the moment. And the smaller firms, yes, you are seeing signs of struggling, but not yet sufficiently that it's really bitten in the economy. Right? What you really need to see is you're going to have to do much more damage to the mom and pop side of the economy so that they stop ordering from you know, Microsoft, so they stop getting their, their, all their data stored on the cloud or something like that, right? Something you've got to do hurt these, the, the, the smaller side of the economy, the rate-sensitive side of the economy, which is narrower than it historically would have been, much, much harder. And the problem is, is Jay Powell's tiptoeing around that one, right? I mean, for all his, I'm going to be tough, look at what, you know, Volcker did, He's not even on the same planet as Paul Volcker, right? Not even on the same planet as Paul Volcker. Okay, so so, so what about the that they're trying to get you know the Dems reelected for next year, right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, pe- people, it's widespread that uh, the what, mainstream view that Fed Chair Jay Powell has been very tough on inflation, and he raised interest rates more than many, many people you know expected. Right. Maybe not you. you, you and a handful of others thought, you know, oh my God, interest rates could go to three percent or four percent. Well, now we're at five point five percent, and uh, so you, you think it, it's, it's still not enough. He's not even on the same planet, as I said, as I think of someone like Volcker. I mean, under Volcker, we took real 10-year yields to almost 10%, right? They are 1% now. Ours are not really very restrictive yet, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. And here's the thing. I think there's a real danger that those rates will actually ease come Q4 because I do perceive a rebound in headline inflation because I think most of the gains that we have seen thus far uh, and you saw the piece that we wrote, is really a question of falling um, commodities and uh, material prices, uh, particularly energy, which are fed through into PPI. And I'm actually looking for those those metrics to start reversing. PPI in particular, probably next month or the right. month after. PPI is producer price index, how much companies are paying for inflation. Consumers is how much CPI, uh, how much consumers are paying for inflation. And they can, you know, companies pass them on to consumers, or at least in America, right? Well, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I, this is this is the lovely thing about what we did post-COVID, right? Not only did we did we get this, you know, cost push uh, coming through from commodity prices and supply chain disruptions, but we gave everyone the ability to pay those prices because we gave them an enormous quantity of money. And so this is why you know you saw the sort of dissatisfaction of consumers explode because they were paying those prices but the best thing is is they could pay them jack because we gave them all this money so what did it do what happened is american corporations took their fist 
shoved it down the throat of consumers into their back pockets, literally ripped their innards out. (laughs) And we were left with this situation where people could pay it. They don't want to pay it. I mean, you and I probably travel probably more than most. I mean, airline prices are obscene but people are paying it they're like hey airline delta it. take take my innards you know yeah, take, take my innards a three thousand for coach sure. let's do it yeah you know new york to vale a thousand dollars fine you know it's look i mean so we have given that now is that can that continue going forward i think you are starting to see some signs on the peripheral of companies and there was a story on bloomberg today and it's something that we've noted companies running into problems with because they've all done this they've all decided oh we want to try and maintain margins we want to try and maintain that profit so if we sell a little bit less mm-hmm. that's okay right we'll just jack up prices you know our prices will go up 10% our profits will go up 6 we'll just sell 4% less units and there's more signs that that's getting stressed that consumers are going uh no, right? But the problem is, is if if the labor market doesn't soften a lot more, the risk is that that in itself, that weakness, that will prove transitory. And if certainly if wages start to, and they're now above inflation, right? So real purchasing power is rising again, then then this weakness will prove transitory. And the Fed will be looking back here in Q4 and going, what? Inflation's bounced from, let's say, two to four again. And we've still got accelerating PMIs, or we've still got accelerating GDP, and all the, that, that sort of nascent weakness that we were seeing in the labor market. Claims are falling now? Whoa, 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 hold on. Right? Uh, a recession in 2023 was maybe it's fair to say a mainstream view in the fall of last year. And it was I like my to say- view in fairness, Jack, and I still think it is a risk. But the only way that we get it now, it looks to me, is if stocks correct and correct quickly. If they don't, Jack, and that tightens financial conditions. If they don't, and God forbid, even though this is absolutely not my base case, they somehow find liquidity from elsewhere in the world to continue this sort of miraculous levitation, then I'm afraid that growth is going to, labor market will remain robust. Nominal GDP could even accelerate. And then the Fed is not close to being done. And either they will have to get grow a pair and really be prepared to hike rates significantly further, or the bond market will have to do it for them. So S&P 500 to 5,000, again, that's not your base case, but if it does get there, and by the way, it's I think 4,500 now, uh, how high does the Fed have to hike rates? It just hiked them today to 5.5%. Well, by my calculations, even if we assume a relatively... um, benign policy environment, right? So this isn't Volcker, right? This is a newer kind of Fed that's going to try and trade off the absolute level of rates for the how long they hold them there, Jack, right? So to go back to what I refer to this opportunistic disinflationary policy framework, 
by my framework, the spread between nominal GDP and Fed funds is still 200, 250 basis points too narrow. Now, if, if stocks rise to 5,000, nominal GDP isn't falling. So another 200 basis points on Fed funds. <laughs> I mean, that sounds outlandish, and I don't think we would go there. I think in the process something would break, but you kind of see the dilemma, right? Yeah, so the current market expectations are this today's hike was probably the last hike. There's probably not going to be a hike in September. If there is a hike, it's going to be in November. That's maybe a 30% chance, and then we're done. So 60 or 70% chance today was the last hike. You and then don't we buy cut it. a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then we cut a lot. And, and you don't buy it. I, I just don't see how that's possible with a rising equity market. And that's why I'm saying things are on a knife edge right here, right now, Jack, right? Either equities have to correct. And as I said, they look very stretched. Earnings are not supporting valuations, even of these very high flying stocks, right? You know, is Apple really going to be able to blow it away? Or are we going to see, you know, another disappointment and then further correction? So, Stocks look vulnerable. I think they should go some way to tighten financial conditions in the next few months, particularly as we move into the autumn and inflation stops improving at a bare minimum, right? But if they do not jack, then bonds are certainly the assumption of rate cuts is farcical. I'm going to tell you about Blockfills, a crypto trading solutions and financial technology firm. Since its launch in 2018, Blockfills has been ushering institutional investors into the digital assets marketplace with their array of services. Providing liquidity as a service, prime lending, their prolific over-the-counter desk, as well as their industry-leading SaaS suite, which includes the robust and sophisticated front-end trading platform Phoenix, as well as the all-encompassing trading order management and risk management platform Vision Crypto Cloud. The Blockfills SaaS suite simplifies all aspects of the trade cycle by combining robust technology with turnkey solutions to power digital trading. So visit blockfills.com slash open to begin your onboarding process today. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. It's often quite normal for stocks and bonds to trade inversely. So if stocks rally, bonds don't do well. If bonds do well, that's when equities suffer. Last year, where stocks and bonds sold off together, that was actually quite rare. So uh, if if you have stocks do okay, then bonds have to do really poorly. But I'm saying, which which do you think is more likely? Stocks do poorly or bonds? So just to pick up that point about quite rare, it has been quite rare since we had the disinflationary shift that Greenspan introduced in the late 90s, right? That he became, that the Fed became more concerned about inflation, uh, de deflation, right? Prior to that, actually, they always used to sell off together or rise together. Prices, this is not yields, right? Bond prices and stock prices, not yields. So that's what happens when you get inflation, right? So my, so which one takes the strain? I mean, this is the really tough question, Jack. I mean, I have clients who are, basically betting on both of them going down. 
right? So you have the short in the equity market and you're betting that bond yields are going up and prices are, bond prices are falling. And the reason they do that is it lowers the correlation and the risk of that position so they can run a bigger position. It offsets it somewhat, right? And you don't kind of have to make that choice. So you kind of, you're playing both against against the one another. My gut is that initially, and certainly this has been the MO thus far, is that bonds will have to do probably more of the heavy lifting, at least initially. So it'll be weakness in the bond market, which will feed through, and we talked about this before, either to credit and then into stocks. Might be wrong. I'm not placing the bet particularly yet. We're running very, very little risk here because it has been quite hard to try and play this. So I'll be waiting for price signals from the market to give me the clues to which one to push. You know, if I start to see breakdowns technically in equities, I'm more than happy to jump on that baby. But likewise, if I start to see bond yields start to break out higher, I'll I'll push that one uh, as well. But something has to give. And a key to your base case for both is inflation reaccelerating. I mean, I think, no, key to, to, to both is nominal GDP staying high for now. Um, because it, as I said, I don't think it matters whether, I think it would be more damaging to stocks if inflation rose. Okay, that's something that they would immediately go, oh my God, right? But actually, for the bond market, if you started to see real growth reaccelerate and employment metrics, you know, what nascent signs of weakness we have seen in the labor market start to to come off again, Jack, you know, so labor firms up again, or, you know, ISM reaccelerate, right, the, the PMIs start to reaccelerate. I think that would probably, the bond market's more cognizant of that type of metric than, than the equity market is, at least initially. Yeah, tell us about why do you think the mainstream recession call the that you know, we would have a recession in 2023? Why has that been wrong? And I guess now the more mainstream view is, oh, we're pushing that recession out to maybe it's going to be a mild recession in 2024. But just what? why has the U.S. economy proved so resilient? So I think in part because of this element of hyper-financialization, because you've got this rebound in stocks in the first half of the year, and now that is manifesting itself into the real economy through this behavior of CEOs, right? We're not seeing the layoffs that we should have seen, right? If stocks hadn't rallied, Jack, because we hadn't pumped in more liquidity or we'd, or, you know, we'd managed to actually drain some net liquidity out of the system, stocks would be lower, CEOs would be firing people, all the recessionary calls would be correct. So I think that's one element. And the second one is we've got ongoing fiscal spending, which is keeping the real side of the economy going. It's uh, it's keeping consumers perhaps a little better supported than we thought was going to be the case. Um, I think those are the two factors that I see. I do think, however, that there are, you know, my I find it very hard to believe it's a sustainable rebound in growth. Third point is, is this difference between the haves and the haves not, right? There are certain parts of the economy that are just much more resilient than have typically been the case, right? Because um, typically, as I said, at this point, you would have had lower stocks, so CEOs would have been responding. 
lower stocks would have felt through fed, fed through into wealth effect for the very wealthy, right? They would not be spending because they'd be seeing their portfolios drop. So they wouldn't be going to, you know, Louis Vuitton or ponying up for a new Merc, right? Um, you know, or, or buying a new house with equity, with uh, equity gains, right? So all of those factors would have come through. Um, they're just not yet. But when you look at the structure, I mean, there's no question that credit, to a certain sector of the economy is tightening. Yes, we yes. know that commercial real estate is a disaster. All right, it's a known unknown, so it's not quite as as shocking to the system as before, but it isn't good. Right? It is going to be a net drag on economic growth going It forward. definitely was good. Uh, Julian, take us back 2007, late 2007, 2008. You know, obviously, I was not uh, paying attention to markets. Where... Um, People was was the subprime issue was that a known unknown in the way commercial real estate uh, is now? Because the theory is, oh, if it's a problem, uh, but everyone knows about it, you know, there's there's not going to be mass panic. It's only when there's a black swan crisis that boom, that's that's when things go bad. Yeah, I mean, I think yes, because I think there's a tendency to look at, and this is this is one of the big problems. There's a tendency to look at asset prices as a metric of the real economy. And as long as that's an, that known unknown is out there and something else is is ticking over, we tend to create this narrative of, oh, well, okay, we know this is a problem, but look, stocks are up today. So you get the journalist who calls me and goes, so, Jim, and we're like, you know, what? why were stocks up today? And you're like, oh, God, well, really? <laughs> I mean, you know, and why does that mean that commercial real estate isn't a problem? You're like, it, it doesn't. They just stocks are up today. Right. You know, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. so I think you stocks in particular tend to be the last thing that responds. Jack, I mean, you know, look, we all knew in COVID in December of 2019 that there was a problem. Right. I had Lou Rolls in my garage, you know, by first of January. Now, you had what? Toilet rolls, right? Oh, okay. Loads, okay, yeah, loads yeah. of them and cans and food and masks and the whole thing. Now, I questioned the logic because I spoke to friends of mine in Hong Kong and went, you know, is this gastric? Do I really need 500 <laughs> toilet rolls? And they're like, not really, mate, but that's what's selling out. So I suggest you get some. But we knew that was coming. But the equity market, chose and the bond market was moving accordingly and the dollar was moving accordingly and commodities were moving accordingly but equity markets did their classic kind of see no evil hear no evil uh, until it really hit home and so i think a lot of that is to do with equities of these days are propped up on liquidity and until until the the shock factor is sufficient to kind of shift that liquidity movement and out of equities and into bonds in sufficient size, they don't care. They don't care. So I think things are slow in that sense. Jack, I think things are a little slow to react. Um, and that's kind of what you got to go back to your question in 0708, right? We kind of saw these things breaking. Um, we didn't think they were a problem. Uh, clearly, they turned out that was wrong. Um, so we will, we will see, right? I think we, as I said, I'm looking at equities and thinking, you know, they are very stretched. The earnings aren't supporting these valuations. We have got stretch versus, 
underlying liquidity metrics. And so they should correct, and that should help to tighten financial conditions. I'm just saying, if they don't, and God forbid to your scenario, they go to 5,000, then don't expect that to be a benign outcome. Something else will have to do the tightening in in the real economy because we will not slow down in that scenario. The worst, the risk is we will re-accelerate. Do you think that the bond market is still the smart money, the equity market is the dumb money? That's the, the conception that you referenced earlier. And I actually think that the price action of January, February, March 2020, as you said, it perfectly encapsulates that kind of uh, uh, traditional view but the bond market was so so wrong in 2021 and in 2022. I mean, it went from you know, the two-year went from basically zero to uh, you know above five percent, and the equity market actually has done a little bit of a better job. You know, kind of sniffing out uh, disinflation, and you know, as it was rallying, people were saying, "Why is it rallying? Why is it rallying?" And you know, now we're seeing the earnings kind of the mini earnings recession of uh, last year for tech is kind of getting a little bit better. So is is equity still the dumb money and bond is the smart money or is, is bond market smart money too? I would say that the bond market uh, is has some of the more sort of thinking investors in. There's a lot more that you can do in the bond market because you can trade the shape of the curves. You can do all these sorts of things. So I think it's a more nuanced market. I think, unfortunately, the bond market's been slow to take on board this idea of what, and I think broadly investors, I mean, even equity guys, right? You know, if you if you listen to some of the traders now, they will admit that it's really about liquidity, right? But if you listen to the analysts on TV, they're not going to say, what I do doesn't really matter anymore, right? I, I, you know, oh, I can pick Apple and that would be a good stock pick, but the fact that Apple's done what it's done is really a function of the Fed having pumped in, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of liquidity, right? Because without that, Apple may be may have been the best ant in the pile, but it wouldn't be the behemoth that it is today, right? So I think, you know, there's a lack of honesty in the equity market. Um but I think the big thing that the bond market got wrong this year is that they looked at things like SVB and they assumed that the world worked in the way that it used to. So in other words, rates and credit would tighten financial conditions. And what they failed to understand is the equity market doesn't work like that anymore. And because the equity market is driving nominal GDP from the behavior of the CEOs. Even if a bank went down, if the equity market didn't respond, they were wrong to bet, Jack. And we we got to a point, which was interesting, where you look at the spread between two-year yields and Fed funds, two-year bond yields and Fed funds, where we pushed two-year yields so low relative to where Fed funds were that historically – and I think this was in May, historically going back 30-odd years, you were essentially betting that at that minute, the Fed was going to cut. Like in the month of May, they were done. And that was because of SVB, right? They were going to cut. This, this, this is maybe the, 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 in March, the Friday that, that Silicon Valley Bank fell, there was a huge unwinding of all these rates trades, right? Yeah. 
and all and these we went, yeah, cut, the other way, we went right now all in now they're definitely going to cut and the problem is is the equity market went up because they pushed in more cash right at the same time that the tga is coming down and pushing in more cash and so the equity market just sat there and went and so the bond market went oh my god right and then you know and this this is the problem we get right if you get equity resilience it's very very hard to see bond yields drop and get bond strength it's because you're just easing financial conditions right across the board then everything's easy so what's your view on liquidity you ha- your model of, of liquidity i think uh, we can put up a chart of it and the s&p and it has diverged over the past few months but there are other other factors affecting liquidity like you know the, a fall in bond volatility fall in equity volatility which can you know, encourage self-reinforcing behavior ai narrative that type of stuff but uh uh, how do you see liquidity going going forward over the next few months or, or years, even that quantitative tightening is going yeah, to continue? Yeah, so I think, look, when it comes to what Treasury does, you know, it's, it, there is large net issuance about to be done, net new issuance, right? So we haven't just got to refill the TGA. We've got to fund, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of new net issuance, right? aside from rolling over existing debt. I think we're about 18% of the total float is now in bills. There's a there's a committee that advises Treasury made up of all those sort of primary dealers. Um, and they've sort of said, uh, not more than 20, right? Please don't try and roll over the whole of the national debt in the bill market, right? You know, this would be bad, bad news, right? Apart from being ridiculously expensive right but as i've said isn't uh bill bills are better than bonds what's the alternative you have to roll it over right no i mean you do have to roll it over but you should spread out you know if you're looking at the most if you're treasury right let on paper jack and we'll talk about that on paper treasury should be looking at the cheapest way of funding u.s debt which would now be issue 20-year bonds correct yeah right now I have a little suspicion that they know that if they push a lot of duration or issue a lot of longer dated bonds into the market, that that will tend to drain liquidity out of the system. They can't get bought by money market funds. They have to come out of bank reserves. It's bank reserves that will hit liquidity in the system. And if I were Treasury and I'm a manifest, I'm an arm of the US government and the Biden administration, would I be sitting there going, well, I know that it could hit the equity market and I'm up for re-election next year. So do I really want that to happen? So I think that liquidity side of the of the equation is a little tougher, right? How Treasury, what Treasury decides to do with its uh, issuance, which should weigh on liquidity, let's see. Right. Most of the people that most of the forecast I've seen suggest that they will have to do some because logic would just dictate that you don't want to roll everything over in the bill market. Right. You don't want to be rolling over trillions of dollars every couple of months. Right. But let's see, Jack. Yes, it's not good. Typically, governments uh, that fail or you know they're governments that can't secure long-term financing it's a great thing that gov- you know the u.s government and other governments can sell long-term debt so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it's more expensive to fund in the bill market because we have an inverted yield curve 
That's what I want to ask you about now, Julian. The track record, whether it was pure by accident, luck, or if it actually is a good predictor, an inverted yield curve uh, has very often preceded recessions in the U.S. So, you know, right now, five point five percent on Fed funds, or that'll be tomorrow, and the the ten year is, is far far less than that. So, short term money is is a higher yield than long term money. That very frequently precedes a recession in the U.S. And the way that it uninverts, uh, as you know, I, I learned from you, is short-term rates falling much more often than long-term rates going up. So your scenario of we have a uh, a bear steepener of short-term rates stay high or even go higher, and then the long-term rates go up a ton, a huge sell-off in bonds, that is actually quite rare. Is, is it not fair to say that much more often the Fed cuts? And that's why people were expecting Fed cuts. So is the bond market a good predictor in that sense, or is the curve? And I think the answer was, is it always was, right? I think it always was a very good predictor. But the problem is, is really since 0809, the shape of the yield curve seems to have got very, become very correlated to what the Fed does with their balance sheet. So to a certain extent, uh, Jack, uh, what's happened is as they've initiated QT, it naturally tends to invert the curve and pin longer term yields down as short term yields rise. Um, and you can look at the correlations that are actually very strong between the, the rate of change of the Fed's balance sheet and that that thing. Now, I suspect that makes it less of a useful indicator, Jack. And I also think that um, it creates a another problem, and that is we're seeing some slowing in the housing market, which, which is obviously very sensitive to longer-term yield, but we're not seeing as much as we th- probably should. And in fact, there are some nascent signs that we might actually be seeing even some sort of reacceleration. And really, the Fed could kind of do with higher 10-year yields because it would mitigate the need for them to do even more on Fed funds. You know, I think it's both more mechanical than it used to be. So the inversion is now, I think, slightly misleading because I think it's a function of mechanics related to the balance sheet. But it also creates a problem in that, wouldn't it, I mean, kind of nice if Fed fund if ten year yields were four, not or four, you know five, not three and change, right? Yeah, on the housing market, I know you had a very good uh, trade. I think late twenty twenty one on shorting the home builders for a while. That was a very very good trade. Those home builders have gone have reaccelerated. Parabolic, and we got we short, tried to short it again, got our heads ripped off. You know that's what stops are for. So it was it was a it was a small loss. And I think what I, I, you know, and it goes back to some of the things that we've we've said before. And this, but it's really the truth in the in home builders. What I underestimated was how the rice, the increase in price, would offset the fall in volume. So the fact that the price of the houses that they're selling is so much higher than before, Jack, means that even though they're selling far fewer of them than they were at the heights of COVID, um, their revenues have been very good. I mean, right here, right now, and I've got a couple of models that we tweaked to, to look at this. Um, the home builders do look even bloody extended relative to that metric. But there's unquestionably, that's what last year helped them really, really outperform. 
Right. And, and maybe what also helped them is that uh, the existing home market, no right, which is why, why they could charge more for their prices, even though they're not selling as many because not many people can afford them. Right. So it's if you look at new home sales, they're down, right? quite materially down from where they were in 2021. Um, uh, and even in, t- in 2022, it's just that the price has risen for the unit that they sell. So their profits are up. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing how some some narratives that like that seem so ironclad don't play out. Like who would have thought that the home builders would have been on Broadway? And the other thing is uh, rising rates are supposed to be good for banks, right? And r- rising rates hurt technology stocks and they help yeah. banks. Yeah. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and I, look, it, you know, that's why, look, at the end of the day, you can have these views on macro. But, you know, one of the strengths I think of uh, that I like to think we have at MI2, it doesn't always work, right? We get stopped out of trades and and think we get things wrong, uh, is that you have guys who look, you know, who are traders. And it's what we've got in the team, guys who ran portfolios and big portfolios at funds and so on and so forth, who look at price action, right? And might might say to me, uh, Julian, and I know you think that's what's going to happen, but it isn't happening now, mate, so we can't put the trade on. Right. Or if and if we do put the trade on and we're wrong, we you always have to have a stop. Yes. And that's one thing I like about what you do at MI2 as as well as uh, Real Vision Pro with, with RAL is you have specific stops. So for example, your home builders call, it actually worked out well. Like when you got bearish on home builders, if you had you know a short position then uh, would have made a lot of money, but you just got stopped out. And so you are, you're actively reflect, reflecting that because, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, look at this tweet I made in December of 2021, you know? So I, I, I like the way you do it. Julian, I, I want to now turn to currencies and the dollar. The dollar, after exploding uh, uh, higher last year as the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, I think since September, it's been in a downtrend, DXY from over uh, 110 to, to now uh, around 100. It's weakened against the euro. Um, and I think the yen as well, but also interestingly, it's now strengthened against the yuan. So, what's going on in the dollar, and why does it matter for macro and f- financial markets? So, I'm uh, I've been in the camp, Jack, that the dollars look stretched to me for for a couple of years now. Having said that, you know, it looked like it was going to roll over prior to Ukraine, and then obviously we saw the invasion and, and the thing just took off uh, again because all that money got scared of being in Europe and fled into the relative safety of the United States. Um, I I think part of the problem that we've got uh, with the dollar is that all the world's money is essentially sitting here, right? It's sitting and is, and has really come here since 2011, then accelerating in 2014. And then since COVID, and it is helped to perpetuate this self-reinforcing, if you want to use the true sort of Soros technical term, reflexive cycle. So in other words, as the dollar strengthens, it also underpins the fundamentals that justify that dollar strength. And so we've had this situation where we've had money flowing into the US because we were raising rates, we were doing QT in 2014, money came into the or we stopped QE, sorry, in 2014. Uh, and, and money came into the dollar looking for that strength. It then looked for a home. So it went into corporate bonds or into equities. The corporates took that money that they borrowed from the corporate bond market and bought back their own stock. So equities went up even more. 
you know, so you had this strong dollar and booming stock market. And that in the real economy manifests itself into economic strength via the wealth effect. And it also um, requires, it leads to a booming economy and a large current account deficit, which needs to be funded by yet foreigners again with yet more inflow. So we get this really strong reflexive cycle, Jack. And at the end of the day, it is a tremendously powerful cycle, but it is hasn't some inherent instabilities at the heart of the system. So it re- depends on kind of three, think of it like a three-legged stool. So the first thing you need, because foreigners have bought US assets to fund this trade, okay, and, it's, and it really is the world's largest carry trade, those assets need to continue to outperform. So if US stocks or US bonds materially underperform their peers, that trade could unwind. Secondly, you need a booming economy because the booming economy requires the funding. And if the economy stops booming, then the current account deficit shrinks. We don't need so much foreign money and the money just goes home. And the third thing you need is you need ongoing dollar strength because the money that's come in is in foreign currency, right? Foreigners have lent us essentially euros to go and buy BMWs or yen to go and buy Lexuses, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because they're buying treasuries, they're buying US treasuries with yen, and then people who are selling the US treasury are buying stocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or they're buying stocks, right? They're buying stocks, right? The, the Swedish central bank, or sorry, the Swiss central banks bought bloody stocks, right? That's, that's literally, they're taking their current account surplus and funding our current account deficit by buying Apple, literally by buying Apple, right? So as long as those metrics kind of hold up, Jack, we can have this stable, unstable equilibrium and a strong dollar and so on and so forth. But there are, have been some cracks recently, right? We, you know, actually for all the euphoria around US stocks since the third quarter, you would have been better off owning European stocks in euros than US stocks in euros. So from the perspective of a European investor, um, we have seen a bit of a slowdown in the economy, not as much as we probably need to. So we still need that foreign money. And um, the dollar has started shows a few signs of, of kind of weakness. Um, I don't think we've seen enough yet to kind of call definitively a dollar top. I've had a We've had a little bit of a play. We bought some euro calls. We said it looked a bit stretched, so we hedged them. And now we're trying to play that. We bought some dollar yen, some dollar puts against the yen, because that looks very bubblicious to me. That's the one that really I think looks really intriguing because it looks you you covered up, you follow us when you know Raoul and I on Real Vision has he calls it a crash classic crash pattern, that kind of bubble chart. I call it a classic bubble. Dolly Yen looks exactly like that, Jack. So you think right? the dollar is is overvalued against the yen yes. or undervalued? So you've had the, you had this parabolic blow off in dollar yen. It then dropped very hard, and we we're trying desperately to kind of re rally dollar yen, but it looks like it could be failing. And if it does, um, that's important because dollar yen is the funding currency for a lot of the speculative players to buy U.S. Uh, assets. So back to that dollar yen. So we hit a, you know, we hit a high of one fifty, and this 
kind of just slightly over, you know, uh, 150 in a parabolic move from March of 2022, where it just went straight up. So that literally looks like the the jet fighter that's going to go vertical, right? It's whoosh. And we went all the way from 115 to 152, which in currency terms is a this is not a stock, right? This is this is the currency of two massive economies. Right? Yeah, talk about inflation. That's basically inflation. If if you're a your Japanese person buying oil, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a humongous FX move, right? Humongous FX move, and we did it in the best part of six months, right? Then it topped out and it dropped, starting in sort of September October down to about 128 and since then it's tried to make it all all the way back but if you remember you know what a classic bubble is you kind of have these bull traps so you have the blow off move you then drop sharply and then you try and kind of come back to the highs because you know if if you're willing to pay 152 for something and suddenly the thing is 128 and the narrative hasn't really changed, Jack, then surely at 128, it's a bargain, right? But something in the dynamics in that interim has changed and you never quite make it back to the high. And the risk is, is that when that fails, you fail to make the new high. You come close, so tantalizingly close, but you just miss it. That's when the bubble bursts because that's when investors go, I'm done. And this chart looks very similar to the NASDAQ, you know, and it should do because my suspicion is lots of professionals are borrowing yen, leveraging themselves up because yen is super cheap and the BOJ isn't going to raise rates, right? So I could fund myself in yen for virtually nothing. I can convert it into dollars. I can go and buy NVIDIA and I can make a fortune. Right, because Nvidia is going up, I'm paying nothing for my borrowed money. But the problem is, is that's to go back to this. It's an unstable, stable equilibrium because if Nvidia doesn't go up, then you that trade doesn't work. But also, if the yen goes up and dollar yen goes down, then those monies that you borrowed that actually starts to rise in value, and you owe more money to pay it back. And that's where things could get kind of ugly. That interest rate differential is is really interesting. I think it's interesting that the really sell off in the yen started in March of 2022 when the Fed first started raising rates. So if the you know Japanese rates were basically at zero or you know nominally negative, and the Fed was basically at zero nominally positive, now the Fed is at 5.5 percent, and you're you know as a fixed income investor, you're getting paid so much more, park it in the in, in the dollar rather than yeah. the yen. So. Tell it, but you're taking the currency risk, Jack, right? So if the currency moves against you, you know, that 5%, it doesn't take much for an underlying move in the asset to wipe out that rate differential. Let's think about this, right? So you're you're earning 5% being invested in dollars, right, as a Japanese investor or as a, or as a hedge fund borrowing yen and buying a dollar asset, right? You're earning that 5%. But if dollar yen drops... 10, you know, 6%, right? You've wiped out all of that carry gain, right? And God forbid it drops 10% or God forbid you're leveraged. 
right? It really doesn't take that much to wipe out that carry. That's the point. And we know in the in the fixed income markets, bond markets, no one's ever leveraged, right? <laughs> Especially in FX, right? I mean, it's the one of the best things with FX because you had sort of heavy levels of of leverage you could take. Yeah, I, I could totally see that so many people borrowing in yen, buying US dollars, it's a super crowded trade. You have a, a really fall in the dollar against the yen. But what about Julian, if, you know, as you say, the Federal Reserve can continue to hike rates, you said, you know, 100, 200 basis points more, let's say 100 basis points more, 6.5% on the Fed funds rate, you, you know, two years, maybe a little bit below that, the Japanese two year is yielding zero. Isn't that still kind of a structural bear case for the yen against the dollar? Should be, but here's the, here's the issue, Jack. I think at that point you need to, and this is where it gets quite complicated for non-FX people, because we always talk about the value. You know, lots of people talk about the value of the dollar. People who don't aren't FX people by by training. There is no such thing, right? I mean, you can look at the dollar index to get a metric of what the dollar is worth, but that's the dollar versus a basket of currencies and predominantly the European currencies. Mm -hmm. So you have to start differentiating against the dollar against what? So in an environment where rates went up another 200 basis points, I could see the dollar doing extraordinarily well against quite a few currencies, particularly some emerging markets, say, let's say it could do very well against some of the commodity currencies. You'd expect it to hurt global growth, right, which would hurt commodity currencies. But what if, Jack, in the process of raising rates, we blow up what I think is a bubble in the US equity market and that all those trades that are funded in yen, invested in the US equity market, get unwound? Well, actually, what's going to happen is while the dollar may go up against the Aussie dollar or the Canadian dollar or the Chilean currencies it may fall against the yen as that as that carry trade is unwound right it may fall against the euro because the europeans have been the ones who predominantly put money into our equity market to fund our current account deficit so you could get these big movements in the dollar between currencies so if in the process of jacking up rates, the Fed breaks something and we get a big risk off move, I would would not be at all surprised to see euro against the dollar go up, even as the dollar went up against some other currencies. And you've seen that in the past. And you get huge movements then in relative currency. So you might get euro go up hugely against the Aussie dollar or the Kiwi or some emerging market currencies. And likewise, the yen go up for the same reasons, because it's a funder of trades that are getting unwound, Jack. And as those trades get unwound, people have to buy back those euros or yen. So, but so you think that uh, the US stock market will suffer in this scenario, but it won't be other foreign markets? Because Often isn't it the case historically that when the Fed raises rates, sure the U.S. equity market uh, uh, suffers, but it's the kind of you know, uh, most least dirty shirt in the, in the laundry. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't agree this time. I think it's the one that's the most overvalued. Yeah. Okay. So if if look, and I'm not saying it will, but if the bubble does burst, 
if the equity bubble does burst, the place where the equity bubble is unquestionably the largest here. Yeah. Not overseas. So they all go down. Don't get me wrong, Jack. It's just ours can go down potentially a lot more. And do you think that will be kind of an early 2000s scenario where it's just kind of a structurally weak dollar that boosts commodity prices, boosts gold? Or do you think it could be like a kind of reverse dollar squeeze that's a little bit more violent? Uh, I mean, typically it ends up in the former, but starts with the latter. So you get the initially you get a, a nasty decline, you know, say against those funding currencies, you get the euro goes up, the yen goes up. Um, in an environment of risk off, okay, where things that where assets st- stocks are falling, let's say, right? Um, US stocks are perhaps falling the most because that's where the bubble is. Um, and then eventually, when the Fed starts to cut rates, right, because the economy is in the recession at that point, Jack, which really started in 2002, that's when the dollar starts to really materially decline. And that's a positive for the rest of the world. It's a reflationary event for the rest of the world. And what you typically see then is other things outperforming the US equity market. It doesn't mean the US equity market doesn't go up. It did go up from 2002 to 2008. It's just you would have been better off as a US investor being outside the US, taking advantage of a weaker dollar and rising overseas assets. That makes sense. So uh, how if, if does it, uh, how do you reconcile a very high US rates with a weak dollar? For example, if the US, let's say, gets to 6% on the Fed funds rate, where, where does the ECB uh, hike, your European Central Bank hike interest rates? Uh, look, at least initially in that process, I mean, we don't have a Fed that's doing that, by the way. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we. I think they should. I think they may have to, or the bond market will do it for them, which will not be a positive. Um, uh, you know, this is why trading the dollar at this point is quite complicated, because I think in the major currencies, which are really the yen and the euro, Okay, Um, there is this element that they're not only a carry trade, at least, you know, they can be initially. Okay, Um, where, you know, sure, if US rates go up more than Europe, um, the euro could go down against the dollar. But if in that process you break the stability of US financial markets, and the money goes home, that's when actually the dollar could really weaken against those currencies in particular. Thanks. How is the economy of Europe? I don't follow it nearly as closely as I should. I know in Germany, the the PMI as manufacturing sector is looking a little sluggish. Oh, I think very sluggish, right? I mean, I think, look, manufacturing across the whole world is looking sluggish, right? We've had, there's unquestionably, we've had a big inventory cycle. And Europe in particular is very vulnerable to that big uh, inventory cycle because they're more manufacturing or particularly Northern Europe. And we all tend to focus on German data, you know, or French data, and they're more uh, manufacturing sensitive than, say, Italy or Spain. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, they're going through a rough time. I mean, I think the idea that they wouldn't go through a rough time is 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 wrong. Um, you know, but U.S. manufacturing has gone through a rough time. Um, so, I mean, do we get this choppiness short term? Maybe. Maybe, Jack. You know, and that's why I'm not I've, – I've put a – I've got a euro trade on, slightly long – we put it on so that this thing could come off a little bit and then we'll see what happens after that. Um, but it's not a huge bet. And I'm, I think it could end up, I do think the dollar is the one variable I'm watching very, very, very closely because once the dollar changes direction, your whole investment thesis changes very dramatically. And it tends to happen for a multi-year period, but we're not there yet. Nascent signs, maybe, right? Convicting real signs, no. And the one currency the dollar has been strong against is the Chinese yuan, not the Japanese yen, but the Chinese yuan. What is going on in China? Is it fair to say that the reopening boom that was expected has uh, been lackluster? And uh, you know, by the way, Chinese stocks on a on a base on a valuation basis are cheap. Now they could be cheap for a reason, but yeah, I, I, I think they're cheap for a reason, Jack. Um, and I think you always got to be careful about when you say where you use that sort of rich, rich, cheap analysis, as they call it. Right? Are our stocks just super rich, and their stocks? cheap because ours are just super rich, right, on a relative basis. So, look, no, there's no question, though, you're right. It's been a very, very lackluster reopening. Is it as quite as dire as some of the data suggests? Probably not. Um, I think, look, when it comes to the renminbi, I am not in the camp that believes that this is anything close to a free-floating currency. I think that the Chinese manipulate the currency. I think the weakness that we've seen uh, over the last couple of years resembles very much the weakness that we saw from 2014 to 2015 in the renminbi as the last time the rates the US was tightening monetary policy back then they weren't doing QE anymore and we started to see towards the end of that period some rate hikes uh, from Janet Yellen if you remember and um, the Chinese have let the currency kind of take the strain and help to support their manufacturing sector which this time is weak right but there is a limit to how weak you want your currency to go, particularly when you are trying to keep money inside the economy, okay, to support asset prices, be those stocks or apartments, right? You don't want capital flight, right? So there's this kind of balancing equation um, between uh, the gains that you get from a currency weakness help, helping your external sector, your manufacturing sector, and what it does to your capital markets. And I think we've kind of hit the limit to where that goes. And that's why I think you're starting to see some signs of euro and yen strength, because very much in uh, when, you, when they did this last time, um, when you saw a devaluation in the currency, it got to a point pretty much exactly the same levels as we got to this point. And then they stopped the currency weakening against the dollar anymore. And the burden of the weakening to help their manufacturing shifted to the euro and the yen. And both of those 
rose against the renminbi and the dollar didn't really go anywhere anymore so i think and i and i as i said i think they manipulate this jack essentially because their reserves are so enormous that and i don't want to get overly wonky here but please please do we're at the anyone end. who understands fx or understands options they're running kind of the largest positive gamma options book on the planet so essentially as the dollar has risen against the renminbi over the last two years. The value of their dollar reserves as a percentage of their total reserves have risen. And now if they want to keep that balance, if they want to revert that balance to where it was, they need to start selling dollars and buying other reserve currencies, which is euro and yen. And that's essentially what I think they did back then. And I, I'm suspicious they're doing now. Yes. And it's really interesting. So as the dollar goes up, their values of treasuries goes up, but that doesn't really de- help the economy. It's kind of a No, but it's, it's just a reserve. It's a reserve yeah. tool. As I said, it, there's lots of people out there saying, well, they, the remember is just going to keep weakening, keep weakening, keep weakening. And in a, in a normal economy, that may be the case, but in a centrally planned economy, okay, where you're trying to manipulate these various levers to, and you have the ability more than other places to manipulate these various levers. Infinite currency weakness, while it might help your manufacturers, if the fundamental problem is not your manufacturing sector, but it's actually your asset markets, right? Your your housing market and your equity market, People leave money leaving the country. You don't want to see there's a there's a limit to how far that currency weakness becomes a benefit and when it tips over to being a fundamental problem. And I think we've hit that point. And that's why I don't think they're gonna I don't think they really want to see the renminbi weaken much more against the dollar. So they're selling their U.S. treasuries to buy yuan, and they're doing that to defend the yuan, and they're not increasing interest rates, which would defend the yuan, but so they could be stimulative. So right. you know, interest rates are like 2%. It's a, bit, it's a bit complicated. I'm sorry if it's a bit wonky, but that it's, it's, kind of, it, it's a bit of a thesis of ours, but it's worked out so far. It's one of the reasons why we sort of turned bullish on the yen and the euro when we did. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that we're just kind of watching and it's a pattern that we've been through in the past and i think you know if i look at where we are now i think it's equivalent to sort of early 2017 where you started to see dollar remimbi go or dollar yuan go sideways and euro remimbi and euro yuan basically move up which means if the dollar's not really moving anywhere it's kind of euro dollars the euro's going up in strength and that's one of the reasons why we're slightly bullish. Mechan- it's a bit more mechanical than anything else. Uh, final question. It's it's a mechanical question. Is Do you think that interest rates will stay at zero uh, for the Japanese yen? Bank of Japan, new governor. Some people said, oh, they're going to change, raise interest rates. They, rose the ba- they raised the bands a little bit for yield curve control. But I mean, it's the, it would have to be one of the very few central banks, if, if the only one that still has interest rates at zero when inflation is going up. Admittedly, it's still slow. Uh, but yeah, when are we going to see a positive interest rate? So, so we, we follow Japan very closely. We write this thing called the Japan Update. We've got you know, a couple of people who look at it who have uh, been doing it for 30 odd years. We've been very much in the camp that the BOJ will not 
at this stage move. Now, could the dynamics change? Yes, they could. What do we think needs to change? Well, I think what really needs to change, Jack, is that is something that's a good inflation versus bad inflation, right? So there is there is good inflation if you're Jap- Japanese in the sense that it's driven by underlying wage growth, right? So it's driven by it's sustainable inflation, right? It's it's and remember they they're still worried about deflation to some degree. It's sustainable, so it becomes self generating. So wages are rising, the economy's booming, consumers are buying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we haven't seen that in Japan for like 30 years, right? Um, they have these run-ups where it looks like, oh, we're going, we're going, wages are really going to take off. But actually, if you look at monthly earnings, which is which is the series that we tend to follow, hasn't really sustainably moved above 2%. You get some big pay settlements, but they tend to be these classic Japanese thing where they pay bonuses, Right, they give you a bonus, but that you know, you go, oh, okay, I've got a bonus. What am I getting next month? You're not it's getting, not a raise; it's a bonus. You get, you, yeah, you're not getting another bonus, right? So it doesn't create that sustainable uh, metric, and I think this is uh, this is why they look at the inflation, which has mostly been caused by uh, energy and food, as bad inflation. It, it suppresses underlying consumption. And I think until those dynamics start to materially change, don't get me wrong, could they tweak the band here or there? Maybe, you know, maybe. Um, But are they going to get Fed-type religion or ECB-type religion? Uh, No. There we go. Well, Julian, thanks so much for coming on uh, Forward Guidance. People can find you on Twitter uh, at JulianMI2. Where can they get in touch with you or your team to learn more about MI2? So uh, likewise, they could just reach out to support at MI2partners.com. And that'll, uh, you know, that'll get us either, you know, if you want to think about subscribing to the Real Vision stuff that we do with Raul, uh, which is more, you know, retail orientated or the institutional stuff um, from MI2. Wonderful. Julian, thanks so much for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Cheers, Jack.